Um, open your Bibles, please, to John 16. We'll get there in just a moment. John 16. We're going to be doing something just a little different today. And um, I don't normally like that. I don't like doing that. Uh, but I kind of stand here at least justifying my actions in myself because this isn't the regular pattern of our preaching time or of my preaching. And so I think it could be good from time to time for us to do something else um, in the sense of, of approaching things differently, approaching the Scriptures a little differently, approaching a subject a little differently. And so that's what I'm doing this morning. And, and I'm doing it... Um, in an uncomfortable way, meaning that since this isn't the regular practice uh, of my preaching, I'm a little um, timid, uh, struggling just a little bit to, to put my words together and my thoughts together, but I trust that the Lord has led me and is leading us to consider the things that uh, I want us to consider this morning, which is namely the, um, the situation that's taking place in Afghanistan. Uh, that has recently erupted all over global news and uh, occupying most uh, everybody's attention the last several weeks. Um, this time last Sunday, that country had fallen. It had been captured by a group known as the Taliban. And over the last several days, over the last week, um, the situation has deteriorated rapidly. And so three things really really four, but three things kind of stand out to me over the last week that I kind of led me, honestly, I wrestled with it, but it led me through much struggle by the end of the week to decide this is what we should do. Uh, and, and those three things are the um, chaos, the confusion, and the fear surrounding this event that I thought it's good for God's people to have a firm grasp on what's taking place from a biblical and Christian perspective. So chaos is just erupting over there. Uh, in my mind, it is far from a political um, crisis. It is certainly now a humanitarian crisis. Uh, people are being attacked and, and killed and um, murdered even right there in the streets. Uh, this last week, a um, group of protesters that were protesting the Taliban rule in Kabul uh, were shot. And, and killed, not all of them, but a lot of them, shot and killed just for protesting. Uh, there's just chaos everywhere. There's confusion. Lots of people struggling to figure out and understand the situation. Lots of people in that country now uncertain about their future. I uh, read one article of a young lady who was in her 20s who grew up in that country really without knowing the Taliban rule. And she had been preparing and studying in college and preparing for her career. And she said, just overnight, my future was gone. And she now lives in great fear, like so many other uh, Afghanistan citizens. Uncertain of what today holds, uncertain of what tomorrow holds. Others in the world are crippled by fear because of this situation. They think that now terrorist organizations might thrive in that country and threaten populations of the world. But most notable for me was the reports that are coming out of that country about our brothers and sisters who are in fear. 
many of them in hiding, many of them unsafe by their own accounts, reaching out to every pastor outside of that country that they can, trying to look for wisdom, guidance, support, encouragement, and help. One organization reported that they had 2,000 pastors, Christian pastors in that country, and as of this week, only two had escaped. It's been widely reported that the Taliban has sent out letters and messages to these Christians who for the last 20 years have been operating in public, sending out reports to them saying, we know who you are, we know where you ministered, we're coming for you and your family. And this particularly hit me early this week as I was sitting in our living room watching our girls play. And they were running around our living room. They were playing with their toys. They were laughing. They were interacting. And I thought, man, Lord, You've just blessed us so much. And then I immediately thought, but how many brothers and sisters in Afghanistan now can't do this? Their kids aren't playing tonight. Their kids aren't playing this week. They're being told to be quiet because they have to hide. All of that has led me to consider a Christian response to the situation. How are God's people supposed to look at, view, understand, and respond to world crisis like this? Now, at the same time, there have been other crises going on in the globe. Uh, The earthquake in Haiti that has killed uh, upwards of 2,000 plus individuals. That's a natural crisis that happened because of uh, living in a fallen world with earthquakes. The situation in Afghanistan is far different. It is being perpetrated by people. People acting in the name of a God. And people taking the life of other people. And God's bride, God's people in that country being uncertain that they will even live through the night. Live through the day. Knowing that if they gather together, if they pray, if they encourage each other, if they read the Scriptures, they may very well be caught and executed. In fact, just this week, over this weekend actually, uh, some armed resistance of Afghanistan citizens rose up and recaptured three different provinces in Afghanistan from the Taliban. And the Taliban's response to them was, they must be killed for such action. No trial, no question, just just die. Those are the pressures our brothers and sisters face every day for being Christians. Bearing the name of Christ. Preaching Christ for 20 years. Converting to Christianity. And so this morning, I don't want to give you... um, a political analysis of the situation. I don't want to pretend to give you an expert analysis of the situation. I don't even want to try to give you a full analysis of the situation. I simply want to highlight how I think the Bible tells us to respond, to to view and to understand situations like what we've been seeing in Afghanistan. In other words, I want to try to shape your thinking this morning about these situations because you can turn on the news at any moment you can get online at any moment you can have the world's perspective at the touch of a button 
But God's perspective on such situations is what matters. And so it's my goal today to bring up this subject as weighty and heavy and as difficult as it is for me, purely to try to shape our thinking to view things in this world through a Christian lens, not a worldly lens or a fleshly lens. And with that being said, let me begin by trying to identify the nature of the situation in case you have not kept up. This group that I've been talking about, the Taliban, they've been labeled as an Islamic group, as an Islamic extremist group in terms of uh, society's labels. They operate by the Islamic law called Sharia law. They both get and enforce their Sharia law from their scriptures called the Quran. These things coupled together to help us understand the situation in Afghanistan as being one not political, but totally and entirely religious. They're a religious group operating on their religious law based on their religious writings and their religious convictions. And so the taking over of a country for them is far from politically motivated. It is to establish their religion and specifically the practice of Islam. And whatever political gain they may have, it's for the advancement of Islam. Now, what is Islam? Very simply put, and very generally put, I would describe it as this. It's the world's second largest religion. It's primarily focused and centered in the Middle East. It claims to come and originate from visions of a special prophet named Muhammad. It actually acknowledges the existence of Jesus, but claims that he's nothing more than an ordinary prophet in a long line of prophets. It claims to descend from Abraham, just like Christianity does. But where Christians descend from Abraham through Isaac, Islam claims to descend from Abraham through Ishmael, who was Abraham's first son through his slave Hagar. They follow a god named Allah, or that's what they call him. To be fair, that's the ordinary Arabic term for God. But today it's almost exclusively used in reference to the Islamic God. In their extremist version of teaching, which is what I would maintain the Taliban uh, holds to, they believe that Allah is the only God. Everyone must be converted to serve Him. And if you refuse, you should be extinguished. Again, that's the extremist version, but I think that is the version the Taliban operates under. Now, for clarification's sake, Allah is categorically and fundamentally not the God of the Bible. And not the God of Christianity. And that should go without saying, but in recent years, there's been this attempt to reconcile the two religions, both from a Christian perspective, an Islamic perspective, and even a secular perspective. That 
Christianity and Islam essentially serves the same God just in different ways. But the Bible says that's not the case. For instance, there are many passages I could turn you to, but 1 John chapter 2, I want you to hear what John says. He says it plainly in chapter 2, verse 22 and 23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. And this is what he says in verse 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Now in Christianity, we have to admit that we are narrow-minded in our understanding of who God is and how we get to Him. There are not many paths. There are not unlimited paths. There's one way to God and it's through His Son, Jesus Christ. And we might be labeled as harping on other world religions, but the truth is they are preaching something to the world that's false. The Bible tells us if you deny the Son, you do not have the Father. So whatever another world religion claims, whatever another individual claims, if they follow a God that is not known through the Son and person and nature of Jesus Christ, they don't follow the true God. The God of Abraham has revealed Himself through His written Word and through His incarnate Word, His Son. He's affirmed His Son through both His words and His works. He affirmed Him through His words at His baptism. He affirmed Him through His words on the Mount of Transfiguration. He affirmed Him through His works. Jesus tells us that in John chapter 5, the very works that He's doing bear witness about Him. In Acts chapter 2, Peter tells us that. In verse 22 and 23 and so on through there. Peter tells us that the very works, signs, and wonders that Jesus is doing are the Father's way of attesting to His validity. In other words, without Christ you don't have the Father. You don't have God. But I believe that the Taliban sincerely believes they're following the right God. And that's the motivation for what they do. The Bible tells us this would be the case. John chapter 16, if you have your Bibles, please. In verse 1. Jesus told the disciples this would be the case. That there would be some who sincerely believe they're following God in doing what they do. He says in verse 1 to the disciples, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor Me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. 
the Lord speaks specifically in this text to the disciples and He speaks specifically about Christianity and even more specifically about Christianity spreading through Israel. And He says there's going to come a time because of your association with Me where people will rob you of things. You'll lose some things. He's warning the disciples specifically that they'll be put out of the synagogue, which at least means um, socially rejected. You'll be a social outcast. Synagogue being kind of the center or epicenter of social life in Israel. Jesus even takes it further in verse 2 of John 16. He says, indeed, even the hour is coming when they will kill you for belonging to Me and think that they're offering service to God. Now this has been true from the time of Christ onwards. This has been true in, in every world religion. This has even been true in the history of the Christian religion. Brothers and sisters have actually killed one another thinking that they offer service to God. But though this may be a specific text in which Jesus is talking to the disciples about the spread of Christianity through Israel, I think the broader principles apply most certainly to the situation in Afghanistan. I wonder how many of our brothers and sisters think about this text. The time has come for them when they are under the threat of death and that threat is being offered in service to Allah, to God. Notice the reasoning for this, Jesus tells us in verse 3. They will do these things because they have not known the Father nor Me. Here's the first thing I, I really want to shift our thinking on. The way we view the Taliban, the way we view those who adhere to Islam, they're not our enemies. They're people who don't know the Son or the Father. The wickedness that they perpetrate comes because they're dead on the inside. In other words, they're people who need a Savior. They're people who need the cross of Christ. And we trust, just like with the Apostle Paul, that even the persecutors of the church can be converted and used for God's glory. Don't buy into the lie that it's us against them. The lie that the world perpetrates. That it's Americans versus Af Af Afghans or Americans versus the Taliban. Don't buy into that. You have an elevated view as a Christian. You understand the true reality and the true nature of the situation. You and I understand because of the Bible that we, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We fight against spiritual darkness. That those who are the flesh and blood perpetrating spiritual darkness need a Savior. We pray for the Taliban. We pray for Afghan citizens. We ask the Lord to convert them. 
I tell you all of this, I, I point out their condition and I, I take you to John 16 where I think it can apply to the situation in Afghanistan because I want you to know that everything the Taliban does, they do out of obedience to Allah. So right after they took the capital city of Afghanistan, Kabul, the, the, one of the leaders of the Taliban gave a kind of a video interview and he admitted that he was surprised, they were surprised at how quickly they were able to take the country, how little resistance they met as they were taking the country. And he said in his interview, it can only be credited to Allah. Allah gave us the victory. We should praise Allah. Commendable in one sense, because if you're going to belong to a God, you ought to give Him credit for everything. But it clues us into the thinking and the desires and the nature of what they're doing. Everything they do is out of obedience to Allah. Everything they do is religiously motivated. And so this is probably the most important point, I think, to understanding the entire situation in Afghanistan. It is this. Everything the Taliban does is deeply theological. Deeply theological. In fact, I would maintain everything every person does is deeply theological. Every choice we make, every decision we make, every, every action we take, every thought we think, even, even for atheists, is based upon a perception of God or a perception of no God. Even for atheists, uh, one of my favorite um, thoughts on this comes from Albert Moeller who said that he thinks atheists are some of the most theological people on the face of the earth because they even have to conceive of a God that they don't want to believe in. He says human beings aren't just homo, homo sapiens, Latin phrase for the thinking or knowledgeable man, but homo theologicus. We're theological at our very core, which means we cannot exist without some conception and some dealing with God. Whether that's the true God or not doesn't matter. In some sense, deal with a God. That's theology. The Taliban does everything they do because they are motivated by a, a theology. An understanding of God. An understanding of their God. An understanding of obedience to their God. Serving and crediting Allah for their actions. Why do I tell you this? It's because we need to understand as Christians, the way we handle this situation, church, not with soldiers and guns and diplomatic negotiations, this is a spiritual matter. And we must employ spiritual tools to address the spiritual matter. This is a matter of prayer and the Gospel. Now, obviously, those other things, soldiers and diplomatic negotiations, they have their, their effect. And they accomplish a certain degree of things and they last for a certain amount of time. But don't for one second think that this isn't spiritual warfare. This is a religious movement by a religious organization that is lost 
And the way to address it and the way to deal with it is through prayer, intense, laborious prayer, and advancing the gospel. In fact, it's the gospel that explains the whole situation. What prompts a human being to kill another human being? What prompts a group to kill women just because they're women? It's sin. The broken condition and broken nature of this world. It's the reason that you and I can act just as wicked in other areas of life, but just as wicked. This world is broken, church, and few things remind the whole globe of that at once, like a world crisis. It would be my desire that you and I would not succumb to the normal thinking about such things. That we would see this as a religious matter, a theological matter. We would employ the right tools to address it, which is prayer and the gospel. The gospel is the only thing that will fix a broken world. The gospel is the only thing that will heal a broken Afghanistan. The gospel is what Citizens of Afghanistan need. The gospel is what members of the Taliban need. And the church is the one given the gospel message. I thought this week also, not just about the nature of the situation, that it's in a, an intensely, deeply theological one which changes the way we perceive it and address it. But I also thought, what about the Christians there? What would we learn from them? What should we learn from them? What should we say to them? Back to John 16. I think there's a few things we can learn from just, just this passage about the situation our brothers and sisters are in. First is in verse 1. Jesus tells us the reason He's even sharing this glimpse into the future to His disciples. He's showing them what, what awaits them. And He doesn't do that just to illustrate His power of knowing what lies ahead. He does it for a, a very specific purpose. Verse 1, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. I think that reveals the heart of God. Because not only does God know that persecution lies ahead for His people, but God so desires the faithfulness of His people, the trust of His people, that He warns them so that they wouldn't fall away. 
He doesn't leave us to our own to navigate situations, to discern the, the moments or the issues. He leads us so that we wouldn't give up. So that we wouldn't run away from Him when things get hard, but instead we would look to His warnings, we would look to His promises, and we would cling to Him when things get tough. He is a God who prepares us, who addresses our doubts, who addresses our fears. Just a few pages over in John chapter 20 is one of my favorite um, stories that I think illustrates and reveals the same, same kind of heart. It's about Jesus dealing with a disciple named Thomas. Thomas had been with Jesus just as long as any of the other disciples. In verse 24, Jesus has resurrected. He's appeared to some of the disciples. Here's John's commentary in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them, the other disciples, when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put, your hand, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. That's a graphic illustration for me to, to reveal the heart of God. Thomas is struggling with doubt. He's not going to believe. He's full of, of uh, disbelief. And he says verbatim, plainly, explicitly, out in public, unless I put my finger in the holes from the nails and my hand in his side, I will never believe. I need a tangible, evidential, physical representation of Christ here to ever believe. And so what happens? Christ shows up. And he generally addresses the group, peace be with you, don't be afraid. I, I've just kind of appeared through the wall here. Don't, don't be terrified. And then the way John writes fixes his eyes directly on Thomas. Singles him out in the group. And says, this is what you need. Put your finger here. And your hand here. Don't disbelieve, but believe. You see, God cares about you believing and trusting in Him. He cares about addressing your doubts. He cares about addressing your fears. So in John chapter 16, He'll tell His disciples, I'm telling you these things so that you won't fall away. I am preparing you. I'm working with you. I'm helping you. I don't want you to doubt. I don't want you to fear. I don't want you to fall away. Verse 4 of John chapter 16, he says something similar. It's actually a bookend. Verse 1 and verse 4 is a bookend to these few verses here. This, this kind of singular thought here because they contain the same language. In verse 1 he says, I have said these things to you to keep you. In verse 4 he says, I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember 
that I told them to you. Few things might comfort the disciples more than when something comes to pass that the Lord has already told them about and then they remember, the Lord has told me about this. He must be in control. He warned me. He prepared me. He has seen me through. So what do we say to our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan? I think one thing we say is remember the warnings of the Lord. And there are many others. I'll just name a, a few more. Paul talks about it in, in 2 Timothy 3.12. Anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Luke 14, the Lord said it Himself, count the cost before you follow Me. Because there is a cost. Matthew 16, the Lord said, here's what it means to follow Me. You have to deny yourself and lose your life. And whoever loses his life will save it. The Scriptures are filled with such preparatory remarks from God to prepare His people that this is the truth of following Me. It may cost you things. It may cost you being put out of the synagogue. It may cost you social standing. It may cost you your friends. It may cost you your family. It may cost you your parents. It may even cost you your life. And that church isn't just something happening in the Middle East. That's something that happens here virtually every semester with college students. It wasn't too many semesters ago I sat here visiting with a young lady who was weeping because of what she had heard at our church from the Bible wasn't what she grew up hearing. And she knew that to believe this meant giving up her upbringing and her family. And you know what she chose? Her family. And rejected this. Because the cost is high to following Christ. And the Lord doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't hide the fact that it may require immense sacrifice on our part. Even to the point of losing our life. And that prospect of death for Christ has been faced by countless Christians through countless generations now. And that price has been paid by many others. Why? Why give your life for Jesus? Why pay the cost? Why face sacrifice? Why stay in Afghanistan when you could have escaped? This is the other thing I would remind our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. And it's the answer to my why. Because God is worth it. His love is worth it. His Gospel is worth it. His embrace is worth it. And a future with Him is worth it.
at least partly. Because whatever pain we face in this life is temporary. I would remind our brothers and sisters that it's worth it to endure for a temporary time because God is worth it. In Revelation 19, one day will be the last day of persecution. That Christ will not let His bride be attacked forever. One day will be the end of sinful history and perfect, peaceful eternity will be ushered in. Where Psalm 1 says, God does away with the way of the wicked. Not the, not the wicked in that verse. The very way of wickedness. Evil itself wiped away. It's worth it. Because this God will see you through to the end. Promises to never leave nor forsake you. Promises to be your refuge. Promises to never let anyone snatch you out of His hand. Promises that not sword nor death nor any sort of peril will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It's worth it. Even if it's not easy. We haven't gotten there yet in Philippians 3. We're getting there. But in that powerful chapter, Paul writes, I've suffered the loss of all things in comparison to knowing the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus my Lord. You know what the, the irony is in that statement? He doesn't see his sacrificing as loss because the worth of Christ so transcends all of his, his loss. He's saying what I have gained far outweighs what I've lost. The surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. And yet, he also says, I have suffered the loss of all things because sacrifice, suffering, even giving your life for Christ, though He is of surpassing worth, is not easy. I would like to remind our brothers and sisters that may not be easy, but faithfulness to God is worth it. I would like to remind you this morning that sacrifice for Christ is worth it. Have you considered today, and I think this should be a lesson or a question from God's people, have you considered what it would be like for you to be in the shoes of our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan today? Would you endure? Would, would you remain faithful to Christ? Would you remain faithful to Christ if your children or your parents or your friends are in jeopardy? Truth be told, I, uh, I may be a pessimist in this, but I, I'm not sure many of us would. We rarely sacrifice our opinions and our preferences. I don't know how many of us would sacrifice our life. 
In Mark 13, 13, Jesus says, it is the one who endures to the end that will be saved. Though I'm a pessimist and I wonder how many of us would even endure in such a situation, I do know the formula to have such a commitment to Christ. You question where your commitment is. You question if you would remain faithful in that time. I can tell you how to gain such a commitment. There's only two things. First, it's salvation. And by salvation, I mean tasting of the grace and the goodness of God. An Old Testament psalm that I think helps capture this thought. Psalm chapter 63. I want to read it word for word. Verse 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. You see that psalmist is saying to taste of your love is better than having breath in my lungs. It's better than living in this world. It's better than living this temporary life full of all of its heartaches and all of its trouble and all of its failure. To have the love of God is better than life. And so if I have the love of God that's better than life, I'll praise you. And what is the love of God that's better than life? It's the salvation of Jesus Christ. And it's not just the salvation of Jesus Christ in a a conceptual sort of way or just in terms of conjecture. It's the salvation of Jesus Christ that's real and genuine and even, I would argue, tangible. In other words, it's the kind of born again that many of us know in language but few experience in their heart. What garners such commitment to Christ to sacrifice your life? It's being born again. Tasting of the love of God through Christ. Recognizing the depth of the disgust of sin and then the power of the grace of Christ and the mercy of God to overcome it. To realize where we were as sinners and where Christ brings us by His own love, His own merit, and nothing of our own good. Salvation is the only way to be, to be committed to Christ. It's the only way to endure persecution. It's the only way to live a life pleasing to God. It's the only way to endure to the end and face the threat of death. There is no other explanation for our brothers and sisters enduring Maybe dying, living in fear, than that they love Christ and have tasted Christ's love. Secondly, what produces such a commitment? It's a heaven focused life, not an earthly focused life. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, John tells us. This world, along with its desires, are passing away. This life that we treasure so deeply and dearly 
is very temporary. It's fleeting. And the things we do here, they do matter for eternity. But they will be left in the past. What matters is longing to be with the Lord. Taking every step, breathing every breath, blinking every eye in light of heaven. How do you endure such hostility if our government is taken over and Christianity all of a sudden becomes illegal and punishable by death without trial? How do you endure? It's not by focusing on this life. It's by living in light of the next. You see, it's with those two things that I think we can say with the psalmist in Psalm chapter 73. You listen to these few verses here. In verse 23, he says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me... It is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge so that I may tell of all your works. True salvation and the kind of spiritual maturity that lives in light of heaven and not this temporary existence is the kind of faith that can say, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh, my own heart may fail me. But you, God, are the strength of my heart. You, God, are my portion forever. The third thing I would say just very quickly. I wanted us this morning, if you're taking notes, I'm sorry, (laughs) but there's kind of three directions I'm trying to get at this morning. First, it's that I want you to rightly understand the situation as a religiously theological situation, which means we understand it and approach it differently as Christians. I want you to understand that God is worth it. If if we come under the same sort of persecution, if we have to encourage our brothers and sisters, we say, stay the course, it is worth it. If you can... Find freedom. Avail yourself of the opportunity. If not, God will be your refuge. And the third thing I would say this morning is for all Christians to understand that even in such situations like Afghanistan, God is still firmly in charge. Firmly in control. We may not always see His plan, or understand His purposes. 
We may not always recognize even when they're taking place. We may never see the results of God's purposes in our own lifetime. But we do know that even in the world's worst events, God is still bringing about His plan of redemption. Working all things to good. Bringing the proper righteous end to sinful human history. I think of Joseph's life story. Specifically in Genesis 50, when his brothers come before him, their dad, Jacob, or Israel, has died. They think that Joseph now is going to invoke revenge upon them, and Joseph understands the situation. He says to them, What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And in verse 20 of Genesis 50, he says, It's so that many lives will be saved. I don't pretend to know all the ins and outs of God. That's foolishness. Nor to understand why He does everything the way that He does everything. But I trust that even in situations like Afghanistan, the Gospel will still advance. You know, throughout history, it often flourishes the most under persecution. And what, a, what an object for us to point people to as we share the Gospel here in America. To remind people that life is fleeting. Circumstances change in, change in a matter of days. There's no guarantee for tomorrow. Our only hope to face a broken world is the redemption of Christ. I want to end by mentioning seven things real quick of how I think we should respond as Christians. Based out of Hebrews chapter 13, I hope you've thought about this verse these week, uh, this week. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3. Flip over there please just very quickly. Paul's giving kind of a burst of thoughts before he ends. The, I said Paul, the writer, is giving a burst of thoughts before he ends the letter. And in verse 3, he says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And remember those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. How should you and I respond? First, it's by examining our own faith. Do we have the faith that's required to endure? In other words, are we saved? Do we have saving faith? Secondly, we should pray for our brothers and sisters and the salvation of the lost in Afghanistan with great effort and fervency. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, there's a man named Epaphras. This is what Paul says of him. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you. Struggle 
in prayer for our brothers and sisters. Like the parable Jesus said about the persistent widow with the judge. Don't give up. Thirdly, be willing to give money, resources, time. Fourthly, be willing to act. There are soon to be a flood of Afghan refugees in our country. Perhaps as close as Texas, perhaps as close as Lawton. Be willing to act to care for them. Fifthly, make others aware that this isn't just some worldly political matter. This is a spiritual matter. And the proper tools to address it are prayer and the Gospel. Sixth, let your own heart be softened with compassion for the needs of others. Seven, seek to understand all the continually unfolding theological implications. You know, typically we start every sermon with a pastoral prayer time. I thought today it'd be fitting to end the sermon with a prayer time. I'd like to ask you to pray for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. I'd like to ask you to pray for the country. I'd like to ask you to pray for God to advance His Gospel in that setting. Would you please take just a few moments and pray those things and then after a little bit I'll pray and we'll uh, worship the Lord in song. Father, it is hard to know how to um, put thoughts together to pray about this situation. On one hand, it seems so far from us, and on another hand, it's in our face constantly. And I think it's important that we have a right understanding of the situation and a right perspective of the situation, and we treat it properly as we should. We know that the only permanent solution 
to the issues in that country, in our country, in any country, is the Gospel. It's to have Your blood poured over sinners and redeeming us all, changing our motives and our hearts and our thoughts. That's what we need. So we pray that the Gospel would advance through the ranks of the Taliban. We pray that the Gospel would flood the streets of Kabul. We pray for the surrounding provinces that the Gospel would take root there and grow and flourish. We pray for our own hearts that we wouldn't see see the situation as us against them. We would We would see the situation as people in need of a Savior. Lord, we pray also for Your people who have been living in the open as Christians for these last few decades and now have been suppressed into hiding for fear of death. We want to pray that You would take them out of that country, Lord. But even You pray for Your disciples and say that I don't pray that they would be removed from the world, but faithful in it. Even still, Lord, we pray for their protection. We pray that You would remind them of the conversion of Paul when You asked him why he was persecuting you. A wonderful lesson of how much you identify with those who are persecuted. We pray your presence would be felt by them that you would draw near to them and they would draw near to you. We ask that you'd grant them faith, courage, comfort. You're the God of all comfort. Comfort their soul, their spirit. Protect their families. Remind them that these days are but a vapor. Remove doubt. Will you meet their physical needs? Food and water, clothing, shelter, warmth. We pray that this scene that's unfolding would serve to remind billions around the world that this life is not guaranteed. That something is wrong and to search for the solution. We pray that Your church would stand brightly as a city on a hill or a lamp on a stand declaring what the real solution to the world's brokenness is. Lord, this situation is so beyond us. Hard to watch. Hard to read about.
Put it in our hearts to respond how we ought to, Lord, that would bring you the most glory and further the gospel. We thank you for the salvation we have in Christ. Help us to show the same grace that you've shown to us. To have the same love that you've given to us. To treasure you above all things. To live in light of heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.